Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Please only continue listening if you've washed your hands. The government is setting out its battle plan to tackle the spread of coronavirus with early polling suggesting the public thinking it's handling the crisis well. So today we're going to take a look at where things are looking less rosy. Rachel Sylvester takes us inside the extraordinary story of Pretty Patel versus well, just about everyone. Will Tanner, a former Down Street advisor, warns the fabric of society is fraying. And Matt Ford, a former Labour advisor turned stand-up, who's on tour right now with his show Brexit Pursued by a Bear, turns his attention to the breakout star of Labour's deputy leadership contest, Richard Bergen. Welcome to you all. I assume you're all coronavirus-free. I think so. Hands washed. Um, uh, although, shaking of how we all shook hands before we started, because Matt Hancock said that it was fine, and um, he, he definitely knows what he's doing. Uh, right, uh, let's, uh, let's get um, down to business and kick off. This is Rachel Sylvester. In one of Aesop's fables, the sun and the wind test their strength by having a competition to make a man remove his cloak. When the wind blows as hard as it can, he just wraps it more tightly around him, but the heat of the sun makes him take it off. The moral of the story that persuasion is sometimes more effective than force is one the government needs to learn following the extraordinary resignation of Sir Philip Putnam as Permanent Secretary at the Home Office. Ministers and Downing Street advisers are good at huffing and puffing against the civil service, but now they need to show a bit more warmth. I think this is a fantastic metaphor for <laughs> summing up basically what's wrong with the... Dominic Cummings going around blowing everyone. Uh, if that's not, a ter- <laughs> that's not a terrible... <laughs> Excellent. Uh, we've, we've reached the tone of uh, the podcast. But, the, but this idea that you basically just go around and force everyone to do what you want. Well, the trouble is that you have to have people on your side if you're going to deliver and implement things. Um, and if you just go around making enemies, and Dominic Cummings and Michael Gove did it at the Department for Education when they denounced all the teachers and officials as the blob. And actually, I think they'd have managed to achieve a lot more if they'd had more people on their side. And if you just go around making enemies, denouncing Whitehall as the roadblock to reform uh, and allegedly, in the case of some ministers, bullying your staff even, um, you're never going to have people really engaged and enthused with your programme. And you mentioned bullying. The the Philip Ruttman resignation at the weekend was extraordinary. I mean, we've got pretty used now to cabinet ministers resigning. It's not even really worth stopping what you're doing to to notice that happening. But for a 
a senior civil servant to go on live telly to accuse a cabinet minister of being a lying, swearing bully uh, and then accuse the government of trying to basically hush him up with some money and then say he wants to take him to court was just amazing. It was completely extraordinary. It was the sort of public pronouncement. And I think it was... He said it was because he wanted to protect his colleagues and he wants to really challenge the culture publicly. And it shows how widespread the concern is. And remember, the government's already facing another constructive dismissal case for Sonia Khan, who was ousted as a special advisor to Sajid Javid, marched out by an armed police officer after a row with Dominic Cummings. Um, And in fact, we interviewed Sajid Javid last week. He said he thought she would get a lot of money out of the taxpayer. I suppose it also sort of speaks to the the wider problem of who wants to run the Home Office, if Priti Patel is there, who wants to be an advisor to the who, to the Chancellor, who is any good, yeah. who doesn't, who would give up a, maybe a job in the, a decent, well-paid d- job in the private sector for a job in government, which might last a fortnight. And getting shouted at yeah. and undermined. And I think that's why the Downing Street attempt to sort of mount a takeover of the Treasury matters, because you need a sort of sense of, rival, not exactly rival power bases, but balancing power bases in Whitehall, that you don't have this whole centralised bureaucracy. There's a sort of irony that Dominic Cummings loves this idea of self-regulating systems, you know, it's all like an ant colony or whatever, but actually all his feedback <laughs> I've not loops, read that blog. <laughs> yeah, all his feedback loops link back to number 10, so it's all this kind of incredibly centralised machine with this slight culture of fear at the centre, and you're never going to ha- run a successful business organisation, let alone government, which is a huge operation without that. And you sort of, ministers always sort of complain about they pull the levers of power and nothing happens. But if you rip all the levers out and start throwing them around... Clobber your staff with them. Clobber your staff with them. Then you're never going to achieve anything. What do you make of this, Will? Is is sunshine and warmth better sometimes than, than wind blowing? Well, I spent three years in the Home Office and I genuinely woke up every day for those three years not knowing what the system was going to throw at me. I mean, the Home Office is an extraordinarily complex and risky place to work and uh, and there is clearly a lot of uh, kind of security and other demands on the Home Secretary. So, I mean, I, I have some sympathy for a Home Secretary who wants to do things her way and uh, is demanding about uh, what she expects from officials. Um, however, I remember Theresa every year standing in front of the entire Home Office saying, what you do is important. You are a great uh, Department of State uh, and trying to reverse some of the culture of, uh, of fear and, and concern about competence that, that was still a kind of legacy of the not-fit-for-purpose era under John Reid. And um, and I think the culture in the Home Office really does matter. And there is a need for the Home Office to to have a, a kind of a, a Secretary of State and a senior civil service that are working hand-in-glove in tandem rather than at odds from one another. And you worked as well with Nick, Timothy and Fiona Hill, who were the previous set of advisors who were accused of being heavy-handed. Do you think they went too far and that backfired in some cases? Nick and Fee were very demanding of the civil servants they worked for, but actually if you talk to civil servants who worked with Theresa and and them in the Home Office and indeed people in Number 10, they would say that I think largely they had a huge amount of respect for uh, the conviction and the uh, and the clarity of the mission that came with those two advisors. Um, and actually, I, I don't think necessarily being a kind of demanding, convicting, conviction-driven Secretary of State or 
or as a kind of team advisors is necessarily a bad thing, but it's the manner in which that's that's delivered and the relationships right at the top. Um, the one thing I would say, though, this is a government that's just been elected on a massive mandate. Uh, if the civil service is um, is pushing back on that, then uh, I think there is there is a serious question about about who is in charge. But to what extent? Uh, just because you've got a big mandate from the electorate doesn't mean everything that you want to do is a good idea. And the problem is that a new cabinet minister comes and says, I want to do this. And the uh, civil service might say, well, we've tried this five times before and I can tell you it won't work. Or it's illegal. It, or it's that illegal. That was the thing that I thought actually was the most worrying about the stories about Rutnam is that he was pushing back against things that were sort of outside the rule of law, which is completely proper and right that he should but That's what do. I mean. So, so yeah. to one extent, it's the civil service job to say, we've tried this before, it's a bad idea. The minister, though, hears, oh, biased Ramona blob uh, trying to get in the way of me with my great big mandate doing what I want to do. And actually, you know, they could sort of both be right sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And just on the legal point, I mean, I remember getting legal advice on various immigration tribunals and all the rest of it in the Home Office where the Home Office legal department would say you've got a 25-30% chance of success. Uh, Theresa would be adamant that we were going to contest these decisions and then we won those cases. So, like, it, contesting legal advice is part and parcel of being a government and I don't think, I, mean, I don't know the specifics of that case, but I, I, it certainly should be the case that Secretaries of State should push back on the legal advice of their departments in the interests of taxpayers because sometimes they are right. Um but, but, I mean, you're right, Matt, that I mean, having a big mandate does not mean that your policies are necessarily going to work. Um, but, the, but ultimately, sections of state are accountable, right? Yeah, I mean, they're democratically accountable. And if those policies don't work, then they are the people, as Amber Rudd discovered, uh, whose uh, who's head's on the chopping block. And actually, permanent secretaries often don't, don't have that type of accountability. Does it make you long, Matt, for the warm, cuddly days of new Labour? I, I was astonished. Well, so many things do. <laughs> I, I was astonished to read at the weekend that even Alistair Campbell wrote a piece in the um, Sunday Times uh, basically telling Dominic Cummings to dial it down a bit. He sort of, I was strong-willed or something, but steady on, old chap. But, that, I mean, that, Alistair Campbell's a really good case study of people who, out, you know, the outside world would look at him and say, oh, he's a bit of a bully. Actually, was a hugely inspirational figure, and the people who worked for him found him to be warm and decent, a great defender of his staff. He was robust in the role that he had. I don't think he ever bullied a member of staff. I don't think those accusations were ever levelled at him. And I think some people misunderstand the role of senior political staff, and there's a machismo that goes with it. My experience of working for... I'm sure lots of people in this room may well have worked for bullies, people listening may well have done. There's a short-term hit that a bully can deliver through fear... In the medium to long term, they're the most ineffective people to work for because it's it's demotivating, it's depressing working with those people and fundamentally, I think, in politics, it's an awful trait. And in the end, people either sort of down tools or leave altogether. Yes, that's exactly right. And you get less happens. out of yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think, in the end, often people bully because they're quite weak and they don't really know what yes. they're doing and they're sort of shouting louder to cover something they're up. thick, nearly always yeah. thick. Well, in fact, one of Pretty Patel's former ministerial colleagues said, said to me yesterday, she was vile, pushy, horrible thicko so she's not popular among her she's not popular among her conservative colleagues never mind the civil service and what's uh, really interesting uh, just on coronavirus is that we are now seeing what happens when a government has to lean on the system to prepare for and deliver a massive national effort that actually this isn't about oh you didn't you weren't very in favor of brexit or you know you're you're dragging your heels on this you know fundamentally the government and the system are going to have to work together really closely aren't they will over the next few weeks and months oh completely and and uh, you would any cracks in the system between civil servants and and 
uh, secretaries of state is is going to potentially have uh, kind of uh, consequences for people's lives. I mean, that that is something that ministers need to take seriously. I thought it was notable Matt Hancock went on the Today programme this morning, uh, and the, the the kind of blanket ban has been broken uh, for coronavirus. Um, but uh, but but yeah, the system the system does need to work together, and it it, it is clearly the case that civil servants and ministers need to have a good working relationship in order, in order to deliver for voters. Well, we brace ourselves to see when uh, coronavirus hits, and also to see whether or not uh, Pretty Patel hits, presumably as well. Um, uh, but in the meantime, let's move on and talk about what is happening, dare I suggest, outside the actual Westminster bubble. This is Will Tanner. The faster the world turns, the tighter we seem to try to hold on. The trappings of the modern world were meant to emancipate us, but two-thirds of people today crave security over freedom and worry that community is in decline. Many of the threads of our social fabric have frayed in the post-war battle between the party of the state and the party of the individual. Post-Brexit conundrum for both is how to become the party of community. So, Will, you, having uh, escaped from uh, Downing Street, set up the Onward think tank. You've got a report coming out this week into how to repair the social fabric. But it's it's fascinating. So you've done a big poll uh, asking people what how they feel about the place they live. Seven in ten believe that their community has declined in their lifetime. Uh, six in ten uh, think that there should be a duty to protect local institutions like pubs and post offices from closure. Uh, one in four people now say that none or few of their neighbours can be trusted. It's a sort of, it's a really depressing uh, picture that you're painting. Yeah, well, I think if you go to towns and villages and uh, and the suburbs of cities around the country and you talk to people about what concerns them, the things that matter to them are not kind of big ideological concerns. They're quite small and they're quite sociological. So it's the kind of decaying high street. It's the uh, the neighbourhood where people are increasingly anonymous. It's the fact that the relationships to family are kind of being dis- disintegrated by modern life and kind of growing mobility and things like that. And actually, that's something that, uh, that is probably top of the list for citizens, but falls quite far down the list for politicians. I mean, we hear from politicians about things like the stakeholder economy, which was Tony Blair's great phrase, or the big society from David Cameron. Theresa May, when I worked for her, spoke about the shared society. But actually, in terms of... None material, of those things mean anything to anyone, <laughs> though, do they? <laughs> well, they, they are they are sound bites, but actually the problem is that they, they aren't followed up th- with practical action. Um, and we have let, I think, the social fabric of our, of our places uh, deteriorate over time. And people do feel quite a strong sense of detachment and rootless um, and to some extent, I think that's starting to have political consequences. So the Brexit vote is a good example of it. Well, I was going to say that, that actually that sort of sense of, oh, it's, it's not as good round here as it used to be. And maybe this is a way of sending a message to someone that something ought to be done about it. Do you think that played a part in the Brexit vote? Yes, I mean, I think too often we characterise this as nostalgia and it's not always nostalgic. I mean, when we ask people uh, whether or not they want things to change, they say yes, they are in in favour of kind of forward-looking change, it isn't just all harking back to the past. But there is very much a sense that uh, that connection and uh, and kind of togetherness has been lost from society and some of the institutions which used to underpin that, whether that's the kind of post office or the pub or uh, or the, high, the thriving high street, um, uh, they have not just gone or uh, kind of faded, but they haven't been replaced by other forms of, of mutual uh, engagement and kind of common betterment. And I think there's a real challenge for politicians now, um, especially in a kind of post-Brexit world where kind of community and social fabric is right at the top of the political agenda about actually how they're going to repair some of those ties that bind us together. Is it real, the perception and reality? Because I remember uh, towards the end of last year, I did a podcast in my old 
hometown of Taunton. And we're speaking to people about just what the town was like and got a whole load of people. Oh, it's terrible. Look at you. Look at it. Look at it around here. Look at all the empty shops. And actually, where I was standing, we couldn't see any empty shops. And actually, the, there were better shops there now than when I lived there. But there's just when people have this sense, you know, and actually, if you go a bit further out the town centre, there are four empty shops. Once people get this sense of everything's going a bit to the dogs, they see it where it, they didn't see it before. And so is is this a people's sense of what it's like now borne out by sort of if you can, you know, count those things. Well, that's so that's exactly what our cross-party review is going to do. And I think it's notable that we've got Labour, Conservative, former SNP politicians on on the review. I think it demonstrates a degree of cross-party consensus on this issue. Um, but in, the, in terms of data, I mean, the number of pubs has declined by a quarter in the last 20 years. The number of post offices has declined uh, by uh, by more. The number of libraries has declined by a quarter. Um, there is a much higher degree of uh, vacancies in terms of high streets than, than we've had uh, for many years years. Um, so yes, I mean, there is there is quite clear dem- uh, data demonstrating a decline in community. And also things like civic participation, volunteering, uh, the kind of the giving back to community in terms of time and resources is definitely in decline too. Um, but what we haven't done, and this is what we're trying to set out, is actually try and measure that in a meaningful way. So Robert Putnam in the US did a really fantastic study called Bowling Alone 20 years ago. We haven't done a similar exercise in this country to understand how community is changing. So that's what we're trying to do. It's all our fault, isn't it, Rachel? If you don't go to the pub or the post office it shuts down well and also there may be fewer pubs but maybe there are more wine bars or restaurants or uh, other places that people are meeting so i i think i do understand the concern about particularly the decline of the high street and that's a lot to do with online shopping i guess um but i worry a bit about the kind of cultural conservatism that is somehow sometimes overlaid onto this discussion by both left and right actually so you have the sort of blue labor and then also the what they call it red tory, red tory i yeah. suppose yeah. um <laughs> and that that sense that actually it is slightly nostalgic the world was a better place and what does it mean for people so actually you know communities are changing in my view that's a good thing that it's more mixed uh uh, more migrants what does it mean for working women actually sometimes this this agenda implies that women are much better in the home you know stay at home mums in the days when they you know pick the sc- children up from school every day and had supper on the table for the husband i don't want to go back to that world and i think sometimes it's a sort of backward looking i think there's a practical thing about what do you do about fabric of high streets and actually saving pubs is fantastic and post offices and libraries but there's a separate thing which is a whole load of other cultural values that i think are sometimes put on top of it so i think you're right i mean clearly there are people worried about uh, the decline of the traditional family for example or or kind of declining uh, rates of religious attendance things like that i mean our our studies are are kind of we are looking at those things but not from a perspective of one form is better than the other or uh, we're kind of trying to be guided by evidence but there is a very clear sense from polling data and all the work that we've done that people do feel quite a strong sense of loss of belonging um, I, I would challenge the idea that that is instinctively or inherently nostalgic I don't think it necessarily is but I think there is definitely something about people feel more fragmented and rootless than than they than they perhaps expect or want to be and perhaps since they did in the past but that doesn't necessarily mean the ways in which they get those roots or the way they get that connection has to be the same as in the past so it might be through different forms of family for, through more diverse communities through uh, changing forms of engagement it doesn't have to be the same as in the past but the the kind of the connection and the value that we get from uh, the relationships that we have with one another and the institutions which underpin our shared lives that is something to be valued and treasured mm. and and replenished 
over time. And I think the sense is that that's being lost. Mm. What we really need, Matt, is a sort of network of state-run pubs, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I I wonder how new these concerns are. I mean, you're right that in terms of the numbers of pubs closing, but are people more concerned about this than they were, say, 20 years ago? So all of our data suggests that this trend is is moving in the wrong direction. And certainly, um, if you look at kind of revealed preference, how much people are actually going out into their community to do things, whether that's to give money, to give time, to uh, volunteer and take part in uh, civic activity, that is certainly in very strong decline and has been declining for some time under governments of all stripes. So this is, there are lots of people who attribute this just to spending reduction. Actually, this is something that's been going on for at least 10, 20 years. Just before we move on, do you think you can trust your neighbours, each of you? Can you trust your neighbours, Will? Uh, Eddie and Lucy are fantastic people. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I know all my neighbours. Sure. I'm in a sort of Hackney in East London, and I know all, most of my neighbours. It's a fantastic community. Right. Oh, definitely, yeah. Lovely people. I mean, I never speak to them. <laughs> <laughs> and from that, I get the gather that yeah, they are yeah. good private folk. I think we, you know, we, we're, we're on a sort of can you feed the rabbits, can we borrow your ladder yeah. sort of uh, relationship. But that's, you know, that's sort of what you've got at the end. So this review is sort of only just starting. When when will it bear fruit? So we'll be publishing our first results before the summer and then uh, and then every three or four months uh, thereafter, just publishing reports over well, two years. We'll get you back on to find out how we're going to solve all these problems. Um, still to come, I'm really looking forward to this. We're going to talk about Richard Bergen. Oh, we'll be back after this. 
Saturday column a couple of weeks on him. And I found myself sort of drifting down a rabbit hole of looking at his tweets from when he before he was an MP. Wow. And even then, it was just amazing. He's, he's like obsessed with um, uh, heavy metal. Yes. And he was sort of re-watching not that good films, which were a bit <laughs> old, and declaring them sort of masterpieces. Oh, brilliant. Um, uh, and yet now, I got a message from a Labour spin doctor this week saying he felt a bit sad that Bergen had gone mainstream, that everyone had found out that he was a Wally. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, the first clip I ever saw of him was the Cathy Newman interview on Channel 4 where he's Shadow City Minister, and he gave two answers that are... <laughs> <laughs> like mistake, but purely by mistake, are hilarious. One of them is when he goes, "I mean, I'm not a deficit denier. The, the Tories are deficit deniers, by the way." And she goes, "How big's the deficit?" He goes, "Well, it's bigger than it should be." <laughs> it's simultaneously an awful and brilliant answer. And the other one where um, she says, "Oh, you're shadow city minister. How many meetings have you had in the city?" He goes, "Well, I haven't." I've got a very busy diary. <laughs> he's awful, but I, get, I think he gets away with it because he sounds slightly camp. He's kind of oh well, bigger than mine. It's <laughs> weird, and I think he's kind of realised that he's quite funny. And it's the first time I think now. I mean, obviously he deliberately misspeaks when there's the clip on Andrew Mark the weekend because we can't go back to the future. I start to worry with these people. Maybe not worry, but maybe just notice. I think he's kind of doing it on purpose a bit now. I think he's realised I can get attention doing this, so and he's dialing it up a little bit. So there was so just during this contest, we've had the peace pledge, which is a future Labour <laughs> government would not support military action until they'd had oh, an emergency conference. I love it. Uh, could you just hold on for your with your missiles a minute? We've got Brighton books. Uh, he at the weekend he was talking about how to re-engage, basically the very areas you've been talking about, uh, Will, uh, by getting their local Labour CLPs to twin with parts of Colombia and Palestine. That's right. Because that's definitely what they're talking about in Bishop Auckland. Um, he also this twinning, he calls it. Yeah. One of my favourite law lords, Justice Twilling. But, um... but the, the Tony Benn Co- uh, College of Political Education yeah. is just... Where do you start with that? I just think it's wonderful that he's... De- I think all this stuff is deliberately provocative. And actually, if you look at the polling on the deputy leadership, Angela Rayner's still ahead. But she's kind of dropped around 25 points, and most of that has gone to to Bergen. He's really kind of made a lot of heat, and I think a lot of the Corbynistas who'd be voting for Rebecca Longbailey for the leadership thought they'd go for Angela Rennie, and they probably still will, but he's really made a play for that hard-left Labour vote. Rachel, he was even asked by Andrew Marr at the weekend, people are saying you're just the continuity candidate, and he said, absolutely I am. <laughs> like, he, like, completely ignoring that everyone else like is Rebecca saying, distance Long-Bailey, yourself. 10 out of 10 yeah. for Jeremy Corbyn. I think that's part of the, why it's sort of... It seems so obvious that you have to do something differently. You can't... It, that's why it sounds so stupid to say you can't. And it's, it's almost like, you know, the the whole ideology is so bonkers that he's got caught in that trap and he has to just ham it up <laughs> yeah. more and more and more. But he's talking to members all the time. So he's not talking to the country. Well, he's sort of simultaneously is, but he's talking to Labour members who do think actually a Tony Benn university would be a good idea and they do think they should have a say over military action. So he's It says to more a... about the Labour Party than about Richard Bergen, maybe. Well, that's it. Well, yeah. of course, exactly. That's yeah. exactly what it is. And he he's talking to basically 500,000 people, a lot of them 
are quite like Richard Burke. <laughs> Somebody, uh, a colleague suggested to me yesterday that actually what he's doing is he's laying the groundwork that he is going to be, in 30 years' time, he will be Jeremy Corbyn. He is going to be the long... Yes. This is this is not whether or not he wins now, it doesn't matter. Just drifting off, he will have a carrier bag for the leaflets, sitting on the back benches, <laughs> wearing a terrible suit, and just still coming up with these these ideas. From a sort of Tory perspective, uh, where what do you make of the Labour Party and Richard Bergen? I think Richard Bergen is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> I mean, it was yesterday or the day before where he retweeted a news article about a quote of his own with just the one word, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was it was reiterating a point that he himself had made in violent agreement with himself uh, uh, in a very circular kind of political argument. And uh, it, it, he, he is beyond parody, um, but uh, for the voters in Grimsby or Bishop Auckland or, or Workington or wherever uh, he is exactly the wrong type of uh, Labour politician and represents all of the values that, that were rejected at the last election I think it's also the sort of lack of self-awareness on the hard left that there's, there's they're so convinced they're right and morally superior and better than everyone else that they can't there's no sort of self-questioning yes that's the problem, Matt. If, you, if, you, if you're taking the mickey out of them, you Blair, right? <laughs> yes. Then they must be doing something right. You're encouraging, it's your fight. You're encouraging them. Yeah, I mean, I, he's been great for ticket sales for me, Richard Bergen. <laughs> Every time he tweets something, I just retweet it with a ticket link. And <laughs> brilliant. He's been a so, recruiting sergeant for my tour. Are you doing Richard Bergen material in your of show? Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even with my audience, a lot of people don't know who he is. Yeah. So I kind of have to explain <laughs> who on earth Richard Bergen is but he's funny for this reason and then just go to town on him he's brilliant I'm very grateful for him uh, who else in your show uh, are you doing that with the sort of less well known people who yeah, I mean, most you're of turning into stars of, yeah he's the, kind of the main one really yeah. I suppose Rebecca Long Bailey a bit do you do an impression of her not particularly well, but that's true of most of mine. <laughs> so roll up and see some mediocre impressions. But um, he's kind of been the breakout star for me, really. He's like the new voice where I got a lot of mileage out of Ed Miliband and still get a lot out of Boris and Trump, but like he is at least... He's like a new thing that I think political people kind of find amusing. Yeah, and actually people quite like that. I mean, in a, obviously not on the scale of yours. When I did my tour last year, actually people like the stuff that was about Paul Nuttall yes. or Andrew Bridgen. It's a yeah, bit yeah, off... Yeah. The beaten track, yes. and they sort of you're, they're learning something. I mean, they're learning that someone is an idiot, but they're learning something. <laughs> it's a sort of educational thing. There is a bit of kind of tried and tested uh, kind of tradition of this, isn't there? I, I remember Liz Truss, where she all of the memes about pork markets and things, and then she suddenly turned that into her whole kind of yes. political character, and it became a really key part of her persona. Marc Francois too is a good example of someone who has, <laughs> has ridden the wave of social media memes. Um, well, I'm, I'm beginning so to wonder. Boris Johnson, even <laughs> well, exactly, he is the original one. Yeah. I'm beginning to wonder if the Mar Mark uh, Francois spoof Twitter account might be being run by Mark Francois. <laughs> it is it is one of my favourite things. It's what the internet was made for. I can't what it's called. Mark Ne Francois Pas. Yes, I think. <laughs> it is amazing because um, it's just about true enough. But it's like his idea of a patriotic breakfast. Was it a bowl of cornflakes with a can of Monster on it or something? It was really good. Uh, so Matt, if people want to come and see you, where are you and how can they get tickets? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> no, I'm afraid you've missed your opportunity. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, this week I'm in Darlington, Hexham and Bedford and London next week on the 10th and 27th of March. And tickets for all uh, dates available at mattford.com slash live. 
fabulous. Um, you've plugged your report, Will, uh, uh, from Onward. Have you, you got anything you want to shift, Nothing Rachel? Nothing to plug, no. no but you're just nothing. in the times and very yes, happy. Yes, exactly. Uh, huge <laughs> thanks, uh, as ever. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on uh, Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen. Do leave reviews. Lots of you have been leaving very nice reviews. So uh, welcome to all of our new listeners um, who uh, have been leaving nice reviews. You can leave horrible ones if you like. It still helps us up the charts. And don't forget to subscribe to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, my thanks to Will, Rachel and Matt. For me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.